Hi there. This is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon. Alright, well, tonight, as I said, we kick start 1 Corinthians, which is going to take us the entire academic year. And so we are going to open our Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll be covering, yes, the first 17 verses tonight. We're going to bite off a chunk. And if I were to name the message for this evening, it would be simply what the text is accomplishing, a gracious greeting, prayer, and charge to a worldly church. The year is about 54 AD. Paul has planted a church in Corinth, a port city in southern Greece. And if you know anything about port cities that receive a lot of traffic and commerce and money and wealth, sin is not absent. Paul's about 50 years old. He has known Messiah Jesus for about 20 years at this point. He suffered a massive amount for Christ's name. But as he writes this letter, a revival is breaking out in Asia Minor, specifically at the Hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus. Acts 18 and 19 record how he packed out the building from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day for two full years. And Luke writes in Acts, all the residents of Asia, all of Asia Minor, all of modern-day Turkey, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Either people heard him directly or people heard indirectly from those who heard him directly. And that was in Ephesus. Now, the city of Corinth is a totally different story. Paul is planning to finish a three-year commitment in Ephesus and then travel to Corinth where he would spend the entire winter. We see that several times in the letter. Now, he's reluctant about Corinth as a city because even the pagans say that to Corinthianize is to become utterly depraved. And that's among the heathens. Here in Corinth, they worship Aphrodite. There's a temple dedicated to her. There are over a thousand priestesses who would come down into the city from the high mountaintop where the temple was, and they would offer sexual acts as a work of serve, uh, worship there to the men in the town. Now, though sin is seductive, though sin is deceptive, though sin is powerful, Christ is far greater than all the darkest forces at work in the world. And many of you know this. Many of you have come out of the world, have been brought out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the son that he loves recently. And so you know that you've been saved out of lifestyles like this. And likewise, many of the Corinthians trusted in Christ at Corinth, including a man named Crispus, the leader of the Jewish synagogue there, along with his family and many others. Now, while Paul was there planting the church in Corinth, Jesus appeared to him in a vision and told him something remarkable. This is Acts 18. He said to 
to Paul, once Saul, but now Paul, do not be afraid. You're going you're to face hostility, but do not be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent, for here it is, I am with you. And no man will lay a hand on you in order to harm you. For I, Jesus says, have many people in this city. I have many elect that I am going to bring to faith. You keep preaching, I'm going to bring my sheep here to hear my voice. Just amazing. And it's all the more amazing about this. Uh, This is all the more amazing because the church of Corinth is going to be very fragile. It's going to be a very worldly church. It's going to be a very immature church. Of all the churches to whom Paul wrote a letter in the New Testament, we would very easily say that the Corinthian church was the weakest. Now, I want you to think about this. This is amazing. Jesus says so tenderly, those are going to be my people. Those are going to be my people to whom Paul's going to send a letter. They're going to be mine. They're going to be weak, but they're going to be mine. They're going to struggle with worldliness, but they're going to be mine. They're going to be self-centered and lazy and easily impressed and entertainment hungry. But they're going to be mine. Now, if only the Corinthians knew how easy we would have it. How comfortable our lives would be. It's so easy to look at the Corinthians and to say, "Ugh, they're so worldly. We have every second of our lives moderated by climate control and buildings. We have screens glowing with entertainment and sex, if we're not careful. We have every possible food and fragrance that we could ever desire at our fingertips. We push buttons on our phone and we have stuff delivered to our doorstep. We cannot look at the Corinthians and not think Californians. This, this, this text, this book has been carefully selected for us this year. Now, the Corinthian Christians struggled with sensuality. Now, we often think of sensuality as sexuality, and we shouldn't. Sensuality is very general. Sensuality is any lifestyle, any, any desire to, to live to please the five senses. Uh, just living to hear music that just teases our ears, or just living to smell smells. I don't know how many people are living for their olfactory senses, but man, some of us do. It's just, I, I want to smell pretty, or I want to smell good, or whatever, or food. I just want food that smells good. It's a worthless life of just exciting the five senses. Now, you can see sensuality, not just in pleasing the, the bodily senses, but sometimes sensuality is just seen in pleasing the intangible senses. For example, have you ever strongly preferred a certain teacher or preacher of God's word? And you so identified with their style, you so resonated with them, that you almost despised other teachers or other preachers. That's sensuality, and that was causing huge, huge, huge problems in the church at Corinth. It led to huge schisms. Uh, Sensuality had desensitized them in all areas of spirituality. So let me say something to you. If you're developing a lot of your views on spiritual gifts and the exercise thereof from Corinthians, you're in a world of confusion because the Corinthians were confused, massively confused. And we need to take what we see here, not as prescriptive in many cases, but as descriptive of a very carnal, worldly, 
struggling church. Now, it is critical to understand that 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians is really 4 Corinthians. I don't want to unnecessarily confuse you, but by the time Paul wrote this letter, he had already written a letter to the Corinthians correcting them. And they did not take it well. Sadly, he's going to have to write another severe letter to them after this one because they won't get the clue with this letter. Praise God by his fourth letter, which we know as 2 Corinthians, he's celebrating that they've been brought to repentance. But it took four letters. That's a lot. That's three letters more than it's necessary. Bad doctrine produces bad character. And bad character produces bad doctrine. If you're living in secret sin, your doctrine's going to weaken. Just watch out. And if you're not growing in your understanding of what God teaches, your lifestyle is going to follow. We sin whenever we are thinking wrongly about God. There's no other option. First point. A gracious greeting to a worldly church, verses 1 to 3. Paul, who has been introduced to us, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, apostle is the New Testament word for a prophet. Apostle means sent away as a king's ambassador. And Paul was called by King Jesus A few years after Jesus died, rose, and ascended to heaven's throne with his father. And Paul's being a little bit funny here. He's saying it wasn't Paul's will to become an apostle. It wasn't my will. It was God's will because I was hunting followers of King Jesus. I wanted to kill them. And the king himself had to intercept me on my war path to go kill Christians. And so this isn't just a greeting. He is reminding the Corinthians that God chose Paul against his will, brought him to faith in Christ, made him realize, oh my goodness, what am I doing? And that God used Paul to found the church in Corinth. This is going to be a very important point because Paul's having to come up against a bunch of wicked guys infiltrating the church there, questioning his authority. He has to use a little bit of a strong voice. Now, who is writing with Paul? He says he's with someone. Sosthenes. Sosthenes, our brother. Who's that guy? Well, Acts 18 tells us that he also was a ruler of the Jewish synagogue who initially opposed Paul. He was bringing legal charges against Paul, and the Jews beat him after he failed to indict Paul. And apparently, when the Jews beat him, when his own people beat him for failing to get Paul in trouble... The Lord used that to bring him to faith in Christ. Maybe it was seeing how Paul uh, was calm and was loving and caring and, and sweet in the face of such hostility. Who knows? But neither Paul nor Sosthenes were looking for Jesus. They were not seeking Jesus. Jesus sought them. Both were opposed to Jesus, and yet he saved them. And there might be people in this room who up until this point have been opposed to Christ. And he's not opposed to sinners. He came into the world to save sinners, even the worst of them. 
Verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Who? Christians, believers, God's people in the city of Corinth. This might strike you as odd, but not not one book of the Bible is addressed to the lost. Every book of the Bible is written to believers. Every book of the Bible is written to God's people. Every one of them. To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, this is absolutely riveting. What was the spiritual condition of this church? You might initially say they were worldly. You put it in your sermon title. What does Paul say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? What does Christ say of this church? They're sanctified. They're sanctified. They're made holy. They're sanctified. They are right now, not will be someday, are sanctified in King Jesus. They're already holy because they're in Christ. Wait, weren't they immature? Yeah. But are they any less his? They're called, Paul says, as saints. They, like Paul and Sosthenes, were called by God to become holy ones. Now notice this. This is important. God didn't call them because he saw that they would begin to make themselves holy. God called them to make them holy. With all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord, and ours. Paul is identifying with this church. Now, let me ask you the question. Here, the definition for a believer is those who call on the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you? Do you call on the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you fit the description of God's people in verse 2? Is that you? Would you say that it's as obvious, Paul says, their Lord and ours. Would you say that it's as obvious that Jesus is your king, your Lord, your owner, your master, as it was that he was Paul's king, Lord, owner, master? Why or why not? To know... To you who know that you're in him. Verse 3. Grace to you. And peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The kings of heaven and earth are giving you through this letter. By being here. Hearing God's word. Reading it. Hearing it preached. You are getting from God. Grace and peace. By their word which Paul is writing to the Corinthians. That's happening right this second. How? Through the ministry of the unmentioned person of the triune God, the Holy Spirit, who is all of God operating in you who are in Christ. We are in Christ So that whatever happens to him happens to us and nothing happens to us that has not happened to him. The Holy Spirit is in us. So nothing happens to us that doesn't happen to the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us. 
God is intimately involved in our lives. It may not feel like that. Life gets awfully boring. It gets hard. But every second of our life in Christ is miraculous. I know I said that word. It's miraculous. He's the God of all grace. He's Yahweh, the compassionate, the merciful, abounding in love, faithful, forgiving in us. He's the God of shalom, the God of prosperity and peace in us. The one who ended our war with the holy God so that now all the infinite God is totally devoted to us. That's grace and peace from him to you. How about that, Corinthians? How about that, Californians? How how many days do you begin realizing that's the reality for you? Second point, a gracious prayer for a worldly church. Verses 4 to 9, verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you. Now you remember how the Corinthians are currently doing in terms of practically outworking their salvation. Not well. Revel in the fact that at our worst, at our worst, God can be thanked for how we're doing in the Lord. That is astounding stuff. I thank my God always concerning you. I get bad reports, I thank God for you. I get good reports, I thank God all the more for you. For the grace of God, which was given you in Christ, nothing separated from Christ. He thanks God for what God has done in them, what God is doing in them. Do you know, right now, I want you to think about it, do you know a believer for whom you are not currently grateful? Maybe you aren't listening to me because you should have said, ow, yes, I do. Do you know the Corinthians aren't only messed up But they are being messed up to Paul as he's writing this letter. It's personal. We can always praise God for every single Christian. You ought to always praise God for every single Christian. I know I'm meddling. I know I'm getting all up in your space. I know I'm messing things up. Yet not I. Through Christ who is working through me here. It's his word. It's not mine. Verses 5 to 6. That in everything. Notice this. This is a worldly church. This is a church that's, that's really tempted to imitate the, the culture around them. The pagan culture. And Paul says to them. This is inerrant word of God. It's inspired. It's true. There's not a bit of it that's less than true. That in everything you were enriched in him, in all word and all knowledge, even as the witness about Christ was confirmed in you. This is just what? How can you say this, Paul? How can you possibly say this about them? The Ephesians, yes. The Colossians, yes. The Thessalonians, certainly. But the Corinthians... Paul says they were made rich. I want you to think about this. Sam Musgrave is not what Sam Musgrave will be. But by God's grace, I am not what I was. 
And that could be said of the Corinthians. Compared to Christ, I look poor. I am poor. Compared to myself before Christ, I look like I've struck it rich in gold. I look like I've struck it rich in holiness. That's what Paul's saying. Compared to what you were, instantly, you are rich in every way. In every way, there's been an improvement. Because you no longer as new creatures ever sin with your entire will like you once did. There's always enough grace in you to make you repent from it in the end. You are not what you were. You are rich. Everyone was talking about the pagan Corinthians who have been fundamentally changed. They are no longer like their neighbors. Even though you might catch them with a camera, snapshot, looking like their neighbors for an instant. If you follow them around with a camcorder, you're going to see they're very different. Verses 7 to 8, so that you are not lacking in any gift. God has completely endowed you with every gift, and you're eagerly awaiting. Notice this. This is a mark of what a true Christian is. This is not the outrageous Christian. These are some of the least mature Christians in the world at this time, and Paul says, this is true of you, you are eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're eagerly awaiting the king's return to earth, who will also confirm you to the end, that is his work, not yours, beyond reproach, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is Paul doing? What is he doing? What truths must they grasp? What is he teaching them? What is he putting out before them for them to grow up into? God has already given you everything you need to live the Christian life. You've got it. It is at your disposal. You don't need some hidden wisdom. You don't need some hidden cryptic abilities. You've got everything that pertains to life and godliness in his word and through the work of his spirit in you. Verse 9, God is faithful. Boy, I need to hear that. I'm so unfaithful. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's explicit Davidic language. You've been brought into fellowship with the king of heaven and his son, the king of earth. You belong with them. You are in their crowd. You are family. You are blood related because of Christ's death in your place. Even when you are unfaithful, your God is faithful. He has summoned you by name to reign with his king. Is there any higher calling? Is there any greater future? Is there any more marvelous glory than that? Do you think that he's going to let you wallow in your sin? See, that's the scary thing. To the extent that we enjoy our sin, to the extent that we're coddling hidden sin, You think that he's going to let you wallow in that? Oh, he's going to weary you with it. He's going to wean you off of that sin by making you so sick and tired of it. And he's going to do that from the inside out. Isn't it great that we get to watch how they did repent? This is a hard letter, but we know because of 2 Corinthians, they respond. They repent. And God did that. Not them. Thank God for his grace. At our worst. 
and labor, listen carefully there, labor to see God's grace in one another. Labor to study marks of God's grace in other people. And your brothers and sisters in Christ. Third point, a gracious charge, a gracious command, a gracious warning to a worldly church. Verses 10 to 17. Now I exhort you, brothers, this is urgent. This is a forceful command. This is affectionate pleading. Paul doesn't discipline by questioning their salvation. Notice this. This is a lesson worth the entire evening. Godly discipleship does not discipline by questioning someone's salvation, by threatening them like that. He disciplines by affirming their sonship in Christ. I exhort you, brothers. You say you're brothers, I've got no reason but to believe you. Brothers, you bear the name of Christ by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord. You see, we're so quick to say, now I exhort you, potential unbeliever, by the name of my Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if he's yours. That's not how Paul operates. Brother, our Lord. Notice this. This is, this is very, they've been very personal with Paul. They've personally offended him, at least sought to. And Paul does not allow it to become personal. Pride makes things personal. Pride takes things personal. Love sees beyond that. Sees deeper than that. It's all for our king's fame, he says in Corinth. This is all about our king's fame in California. We don't have the luxury of taking things personally. We can and should expect his next words to be critical. He says what? That you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. What? Does Paul really mean what he just said? Absolutely. God has spoken and he didn't speak so that you and I would waste our time debating He's spoken so that you and I would believe him and obey together. Doctrine and theology are not a hobby. They're not a pastime. They're not something some dorky Christians do. Studying scripture together is knowing God together is loving God together. Doctrine is what unifies the people of God together. It's a shame how many cry for unity, but let's do it despite doctrine. Let's set aside doctrine and somehow unify as if it's some sentimental pleasantry. That's not how Christians unify. How can we pride ourselves in diverse opinions and decisions as God's word calls for unity of thought? If God's word is truth, 
isn't any divergence falsehood? Verse 11, for I have been informed concerning you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Notice here, again, it is loving to watch out for one another. Chloe's people did a good thing, running to Paul. If we're fighting, if there's division in here, if you guys are bickering against one another, it's really good that the the pastors and elders know about it. We want to help you through this. Do not go and struggle privately. Come. We love you. Come to the leaders. I was just looking as we were worshiping. How many godly people in this room are here devoting their time? Not to make this a shame thing, not at all. But they're happily devoting their time to to invest in your lives. If you guys are not making use of these older people, uh, Christians, these wise, godly Christians, and I know they're rolling their eyes going, my goodness, we're, we're not old, wise, and godly. They're, they're excellent. And if you're not making use of them, you're crazy. Now, I mean this, verse 12, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. You have these divisions. Now, before any of you starts to go, well, wait, hey, isn't there a bunch of denominations today? Let's realize something, that the danger of what's happening here is it's in one local church. That's the problem. It's one local church, and you have these factions within the church. Moreover, it's not disagreements about the application of God's word in church government and how leadership should operate. It's cultic. It's cultish. Now, let me illustrate it. Paul founds the church in Corinth. And so you've got a group of people who are really loyal to him. Now, others loved when deep intellectual Apollos came. And my goodness, he was from Alexandria. This, he's from the Oxford Cambridge of the ancient world. And everyone just loved his preaching, took it deeper. Others said... Wait, isn't, isn't Peter the rock on which Christ built his church? Still others said, we only listen to red letters, baby. We're the Jesus people. We still see, there's laughter because we, it's relatable. Don't read this and think, oh yeah, those immature Corinthians. Are you kidding me? This is still a clear and present danger 2,000 years later. Now, Paul will say that all, he goes, all of us, me, Peter, Apollos, we're all God's gifts to you. The fact that you're dividing over us is just lunacy. God's given all of us to you. You should be going, I love Paul. I love Peter. Give me some Apollos. And man, we're all Christ's people, of course. We can't get enough. Verse 13. I love this. I love his sarcasm. Oh, has Christ been divided? Oh, that's what's happened. I forgot that Christ rose, he ascended to heaven's throne, and then we pulled him back down and we pulled his body parts apart. We dismembered him, didn't we? Yeah, that's right. I forgot that that happened. I see that Christ has been split apart to suit our preferences. I forgot that happened. You are Christ's body, and yet you're tearing him limb from limb. What a graphic picture for us to see the foul offense 
of this sin. I love this. He goes further. He goes, was Paul crucified for you? I don't remember dying on a cross for your sins under the wrath of God. Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? Come on. Notice, by the way, that he only uses himself negatively. He refuses to use Peter or Apollos negatively. He won't put shade on his brothers. If it comes to negative examples, he's the one that's going to be the example. Christ died for you. You were baptized into Christ. There's no one else. There's no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. Watch how sharp, watch how serious he is. Verses 14 and 15. I thank God that I baptized none of you. This is so funny. Can you imagine reading this letter from Paul? I thank God that I didn't baptize a single one of you. Well, except for Crispus and Gaius. So that none of you would say that you were baptized in my name. None of you could say that you're Paul's apostles. Wow. I'm so thankful that God allowed me to dodge that bullet. And then he suddenly remembers. This is funny. Verse 16. Well, now, I I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. But beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone. Now, what if he did baptize other people? He doesn't remember. But what if he did? Watch this. Why does the Holy Spirit let Paul say, Inerrant scripture here, without mistake scripture here. Why does the Holy Spirit let Paul say that he only baptized Crispus and Gaius before then reminding him he also baptized Stephanus and then prompting him to go, maybe there were some others too, Paul. This is an errant word of God. There's no mistake here. What he said was true. Why does the Spirit let him kind of stumble through this? Watch. What effect would it have on you if Paul baptized you? If Paul had really baptized you, but your name is not Crispus or Gaius or Stephanus, and you're reading this letter, you might be a little sad for a moment, huh? You don't remember baptizing me? It was like the most important day of my life. Being baptized by the Apostle Paul was, uh, I wrote it in the back of my Bible. Apostle Paul baptized me today. And you don't remember? And then you realize, oh, it doesn't matter who baptized me. It doesn't matter. Because all that matters is the one into whom I am baptized. That's why the Holy Spirit lets Paul stumble so that we would feel the weight. You are baptized into Christ Jesus, and it doesn't matter if you're remembered by some apostle or some great preacher. The Holy Spirit didn't make a mistake. Paul will forget you. Christ will not. You are graven into his hands. A nursing mother would sooner forget the baby at her breast than Christ would forget you. That's what matters. Paul is weaning him, weaning them off of their celebrities, their heroes. There's only one hero. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, not in wisdom of word, so that the cross of Christ will not be made empty. Brothers and sisters, this academic year is about Christ Jesus. 
and every year of your life after this. This year and every year after is about King Jesus. It's about the King, the King who was crucified, as we're going to see soon. Baptism in water doesn't save you. King Jesus saves you. And that's why preaching the good news that he died to purge sins and rose to justify sinners is paramount, uncontested, the only thing. Buttering up the historical facts about his death and resurrection and ascension and return is an attack on the power of God to save, which is the gospel. Eloquent speech Creative stories rob Christ of glory and eviscerate what he did on that cross. Gut is the language. Guts the cross of its power. And so prepare your year. Prepare yourself for a year of philosophy-crushing, religion-killing, personality-cult-crucifying preaching of the king. The king who was crucified to save sinners. And let's pray that God would rally us under his banner through 1 Corinthians. Father, we do ask, Lord, that you would do this work in us by your spirit and for Christ's fame. We pray it in his name. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. And if you're interested in a great Bible college here in the area, check out calchristiancollege.edu. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.